All right, good evening, everybody. Good to have so many of you already out with us and acknowledging so in the comments. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to start, uh, get right into it tonight. I'm going to forgo any singing tonight, if that's all right. Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse number 13. And as you get your Bibles open to that spot, I'm going to go ahead and start us with a word of prayer tonight. Father, thank you for this privilege, this opportunity once again to open up the Word of God, study and learn and hear from you. Father, there's so much that we still need to know, want to know. Please speak to us, guide us into all truth tonight, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 13. Let me just remind you of the outline we're working with for this chapter. Just broke it into various people groups. And starting in verse 13, uh, we've looked at the uh, married people, unmarried people. Now we're getting into the young people. Verse 13, Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. Now, when he says suffer little children, he, that's old English for, for saying allow them. Let these kids come. To come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus had just recently given them a lesson about the childlike humility that is necessary to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. That was in Matthew 18. Now, we're not sure how many days ago that was in, in uh, correlation to this event, but I would say no more than two or three days. I always find it interesting when we get, and this happens quite often in the Gospels where Jesus teaches something and then a few days, few weeks later, they need to relearn that lesson. He had just said that kids were an important part of God's plan and here they are forbidding them to come. Verse 15, it says, he laid his hands on them and departed thence. This uh, is part of the reason that we do a baby dedication in in our church and why many churches uh, partake of that certain that particular event this passage by itself it doesn't doesn't command us to do such a thing for kids but it shows us that it is acceptable behavior and in when you get this story in luke's gospel it's over in luke chapter 18 you find that the little kids mentioned go all the way down to infants so you have moms and dads bringing their babies to jesus and simply wanting him to to pray over these kids lay his hands on i I would say pray over them. And in another place it says he blessed them. So something was said. And uh, the question does come up. We're not told exactly what this does for the child. But at the very least, I don't see anything mystical or strange going on beyond what we read here. I, I think when it says he blessed them, simply acknowledging these children would show to the parents, to the kids that are old enough to understand, and even these infants at some point in the future, right? Mom and dad is going to say, there was this day, this time that we brought you to Jesus. And instead of shooing you away, he stopped, took time, laid his hand on you, prayed over you, asked God to bless you. And it would show that the Messiah and that God is personally interested in that child, that that child has value in, in the Savior's eyes. So at the very least, it would indicate that. Now, verse number 16, 
This is also, I'm, I'm categorizing this next part as young people, because as you'll see, this is the rich young ruler there in verse number 22. It says the young man uh, was speaking to Jesus. So I, I'm going to put this young man in his late teens, I'm going to say even early 20s, because to be a ruler, I'm thinking it has to at least be uh, into that adult stage of life. But uh, his exact age, we're not sure of. Verse 16, it says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What an excellent question. This is a question anybody in humanity needs to wrestle with, needs to come to grips with, needs to find the answer to. Now, this is something we use in our, in our basic Bible study, right? The discipleship course that we use. We look at this in lesson one and compare it with the question that Paul got in Acts chapter 16. What must I do to be saved? And it's basically the same question. Keep in mind that that lesson that very first foundational lesson about rightly dividing the word of truth and that Jesus is answering this question before the cross, but still there are some great lessons you and I can learn that apply to our lives, that apply to our discipleship. So let's not dismiss the passage simply because it's happening on the other side of the cross. There's some wonderful things to learn here, but it's a very good question to ask. And in verse 17, before Jesus gets right to answering the question, he's going to take advantage of what this rich young ruler has said. When the ruler addresses him, he says, good master. Now, I'm sure the ruler did not, I don't think he put a lot of time and thought into the exact title that he used or into the adjective that he used. He's probably more concerned with just the question, right? But Jesus says, and now that you've said this, good master, let, let me remind, let me, let me use that as an opportunity to speak of my divinity. Now notice in verse 17, Jesus doesn't deny that he's good. Watch what he says. He said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Now he's just slipped that little bit of information in. It does not say that Jesus denied the adjective good. Jesus didn't deny that he is God. Right now, many take it that way. Uh, I, I know in the debates I've had with uh, Muslims, they, have, they cling to this to say, you see, Jesus is claiming not to be God. That's not the case at all. I believe he's telling the rich young ruler, if you want to call me good, just know what you're calling me. Now, think about it like this. When he says, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. Well, yes, in, in the doctrinal sense, in the, in the absolute perfect righteousness, completely pure, holy, without sin, without spot, there's only one that fits that category. If that's your standard for good, there's only one good, and that is God. But even Jesus, back in Matthew 5, verse number 45, he said that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So in addressing humanity, Jesus recognizes that there's a distinction between good and evil. Now this is when you compare one person to another person. You will have one category for good, and obviously the opposite would be bad. 
or evil. But when it comes to the standard of absolute righteousness, now you're getting into the category that Paul addressed in Romans chapter 3. You might remember verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. They've all gone out of the way. He says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. Well, that is compared to God, none good, none good. Now, man compared to man, you'll find some good and some not. But obviously, Jesus is, is using the same standard that Paul referred to in Romans 3, that absolute, that absolute righteous standard for good. So verse 17, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one that is God, but if thou will enter into life, keep commandments. Keep the commandments. Now, this is not the answer that we would probably give, right? If somebody came to us and said, what must I do to be saved? We, would, we should give the answer that the Apostle Paul gave. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, the way that this is often handled um, by many, of, even a Baptist preacher, but really several denominations handle it this way. They say that Jesus mentions the commandments, not that he actually has to keep the commandments as part of his salvation, but that by telling him keep the commandments, he will quickly realize that he's not able to and therefore see his need for a savior. You can see what they've done. They have taken Galatians 3.24, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. They've taken that New Testament truth and read it back into this passage, even though the book of Galatians didn't exist at that time. Now, is that what Jesus is trying to get across? I, I don't think so. And I think this will be clear as we continue on. Verse 18, he saith unto him, which? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And then he's going to give one that kind of is all-encompassing. All, all and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So now he's, th this is obviously a bit broader, but it catches anything else that would apply, you know, the commandments as far as one man to another, anything that he ought to do. Verse 20, the young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. So this makes me think that he's no longer a youth, that he's, he's just, he's still a young man, but he has recently come out of what we would call adolescence. All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? What a tremendous testimony. I don't know about you, but by the time I had reached the end of my adolescence, I couldn't say that. I, 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 didn't, I hadn't committed everything in the list, but pretty close. Wow, what a testimony for a young person. And still it wasn't enough. Verse 21, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect. Now, perfect in what sense? Perfect in the sense of a complete. If that, not sinless, obviously, but complete. If you want to complete all the requirements for inheriting eternal life. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. So in order to complete the, let's call it the list of commandments that you need to keep, this young man, evidently, he had a problem with covetousness. There, were, there was some greed 
or at, at the least, if we're not going to use the word greed, maybe that's too strong of a word, at the least there was a love for these possessions. There was this love for worldly things, for wealth, for money, what the Bible calls mammon. Now, Jesus had already preached earlier on in Matthew 6, you can't have two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. So mammon, wealth, money, riches, it held a place in this young man's heart. He loved it. He said, how do you know? Because in verse 22, when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. So this, it was able to trigger some emotion. It caused some grief, some pain to say, I'm going to have to give that up. So in order to complete the list of the requirements, the required commandments, you're going to have to sell that you have, give to the poor. Then he also says, and come and follow me. Now let's break this down in a dispensational manner. If you're in the Old Testament before the Messiah appears on the earth, what do you do? Keep the commandments. Once the Messiah appears and is now preaching and manifesting himself and the Father, telling the people how to have a proper relationship with God, what must you do to have eternal life? Well, the commandments are still in effect, but now you are also responsible to believe what the Messiah is saying and become one of his disciples. So do you see this advanced revelation, this progressive revelation? Slowly, God is showing mankind more and more and The people that receive this revelation are responsible to do something with it. Notice what Jesus did not mention. There's no mention of the cross. Jesus did not say, give me a few weeks, I will have died, I will have paid for your sins, and then you can receive it all by faith. He didn't go there. That hadn't happened yet. So there was no looking forward to the cross in this passage. But there was the requirement for this young man to do something with what had been revealed. The law had been revealed, and also Christ and his teachings had been revealed. So keep the commandments, come and follow me. Let me ask you a question, any of you that do personal work, and I hope that's all of you to some extent. When somebody asks you, how can I be sure I'm going to heaven, do you tell them you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor? Is that part of the gospel that you preach? Now, you can give me an answer like something, uh, something about, well, you know, that's the evidence of it. Well, I would admit that somebody who's saved and, and then afterwards um, performed such an act of charity, that, that would certainly support the claim of being a, a follower of Christ. But Jesus didn't say, follow me and then do it. He said, you go do this and then come and come follow me. To tell somebody today, you got to sell everything you have, give it, give it to the poor. Wow, that's a high standard. That's a high standard. I wonder what we're supposed to learn from that. Folks, let's not take personal work lightly. Let's not think that simply that, that our job is simply to be good salesmen and we, we pitch the gospel to the person and make it sound real good. Listen, it's super easy. Just pray this prayer and bam, you're in. That person's heart needs to genuinely understand what they're getting into, what they're committing to. When somebody receives Christ as their Savior, it's not a, it's not a get out of hell free card and that's all, that's all I'm doing. They're receiving 
a brand new relationship with God. Therefore, we need to make sure, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we, we need to preach discipleship before salvation. I, I do understand that the cross changed things, and now the Holy Spirit comes in, and that brings about the fruit, and I, I get that. But still, as a disciple of Christ, Jesus has some fairly high standards for what he expects his followers to do, to be free of any other master in their heart. It says in verse 22, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And I'd like to show you a verse, uh, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. I've uh, often wondered about, about this next part. I'm going to put, this is your attendance code for this evening, so let me just put it on the screen there. Mark 14, verse number 51. Amy, was that you that said amen? I, I, I got this new little trick here. Amen. I like that. I don't know if you could hear that. Amen. That's awesome. I like my new little toys here. All right, so the attendance code, Mark chapter 14 and verse number 51. Now the Bible, it tells, it tells us about this young man going away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It never tells us in that passage what happened to that young man. But that phrase, young man, it's used in each gospel referring to that rich young ruler. And then only the only other place you read the phrase young man, it's in the gospel of Luke where Jesus raised uh, the widow of Nain's son. And there's one other time that the gospels use the phrase young man. And it's right here in Mark 14, this very strange, unique passage. You don't find this in any other gospel account. Take a look at it with me. Verse 51, And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him. Now this is out in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers have now come upon Jesus and the disciples, and the, the disciples have run off. And this young man, whoever he is, all he has is this linen cloth on his naked body. That's all he's got. Verse 52, And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. You know what he ends up with? Nothing. That's all we know about this. It doesn't tell us who this young man is. And therefore, I want to be careful not to overstate my case. I cannot prove definitively that the young man we're reading about here in Mark is the same rich young ruler from Matthew 19. I, I don't know that. But wouldn't that be a wonderful ending to the story that Jesus tells him, if you want to be, if you want to have eternal life, then you're going to have to be my disciple. And that requires that you sell all. Because for this young man, right, not everybody may have to go through such a fantastic gesture, but this young man evidently the, the wealth, the riches of this world had such a grip on his heart that Jesus knew some people might have to pluck out their eye, others might have to cut off a, a hand. For this young man, you'd have to sell it all. Wouldn't it be a wonderful end to the story that he made the decision to give it all up to follow Christ? And even when the other disciples had forsaken him and fled, verse 50, this young man still hung around until the soldiers had ripped off the only thing he had left 
and off he runs. What, what a, it makes for great preaching. I wish we had a little more information to, to make sure that's the same guy. We'll find out one day, right? I mean, one day I, I really hope that we meet this young man. If, if I understand it correctly, there's a good chance he's in the body of Christ. Yeah, because he's a young man. Jesus dies. You know, he's still he's still alive. He would have been, then if he's a disciple, he gets he receives the Holy Spirit, and on we go. So, one day we'll find out. All right, come back to Matthew chapter nineteen and verse number twenty three. Matthew nineteen, verse number twenty three. It says, "Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall." hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let's, let's get verse 24 with this. Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses this proverb, this, this figure of speech, an idiom, just to emphasize what he had just what he had said in verse 23 that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven it's not impossible but it is improbable verse 24 now this was a proverb that was often used by jews and arabians in biblical times and even before it you can find it in other historical writings where this proverb would be used to to speak about the impossible nature of something you know, it, it is an exaggeration, but just to get across a real point that something is practically impossible, that it would require a miracle or something supernatural in order for it to happen. Now, let's, let's talk just for a moment about why it's so difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you, it, as a matter of fact, let me ask you to flip over to Mark chapter 10 because you can see there a little, there, there's a little bit more information that we get in Mark 10 verse 23. Let's start there. Mark 10, 23. Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and so forth. So you see in Mark, Mark's gospel, it talks about them trusting in uh, riches. The money in and of itself is not the problem. It's the man's relationship to the money. And this is, let's call it what it is. Let, let's, let's call it a necessary evil. It is a necessary evil. I understand money by itself is amoral. It's not immoral. It is amoral. It is a thing like any other thing. But my goodness, it causes a lot of trouble. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, Money answereth all things. Now it doesn't, you can go read that for yourself. He's not saying that money is the answer for everything in life. He's simply saying, whatever you want to do in life, right? generally speaking, somebody's got to pay for it. You want to take a trip, you want to throw a party, you want to buy a house, you want to, you want to buy food. Money answers all things. You're going to have to ask the question, who's going to pay for this? So it is a part of our lives, whether we like it or not, to whatever extent. Here's some things we have to be careful of, not to trust 
in the riches. You, you find this again in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. We'll, we'll take a look at that passage in just a moment. But another thing money can do, money, money allows us access to the pleasures of life. Now you say, what's wrong with that? Nothing in and of itself until the pleasures of life become the end goal and then it becomes a massive distraction, right? Becomes this, uh, it's like drinking salt water. It just gets worse and worse and worse and you keep trying to satisfy yourself with things, with worldly things and it never does fully satisfy you so you just keep doing more and more and my goodness, obviously you have to have the money to do that. So it can distract a person's heart. It can make him think he can get high-minded and think this, because I have money, I'm right. See, the money can be very deceitful. In another place, Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches. It makes you think, because I'm high-class in this world, I must be high-class with God. Or because I have money, because I'm successful, therefore whatever I believe or say or practice, that must be right. It must be approved because look, I'm blessed. That's not a fair assumption. Uh, flip over to 1 Timothy 6. Let me just show this to you real quick. 1 Timothy 6. Uh, this entire chapter, to be honest, uh, with few exceptions, every verse in it is dealing with money one way or the other. And 1 Timothy 6, Paul says this in verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Now notice it doesn't say they that are rich. They that will be rich. You see it goes back to the desire of the heart. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. What goes on? It, money, when, when a person begins to love money, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil, what happens is you start to compromise you'll start to apply this old wicked philosophy of the end justifies the means. And well, you gotta make a living somehow and everybody needs money. And all of a sudden your morals get compromised, your doctrine gets compromised, and then your life is drowning. You're drowning yourself in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows now just for the sake of the lesson verse six, uh, 17 charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living god who giveth us richly all things to enjoy so it's okay to have the money it's all right to enjoy the money just as long as the money doesn't grab a hold of your heart to the point that you're not willing to let go of it. You can see that in the next couple verses. So that it doesn't change your standard of morality and your standard for truth. Many a preacher have erred from the faith because as they get up to preach on Sunday morning, they know if I say what's true, I have certain people in the church that aren't gonna like it. And if they leave, they may not come back, they may not give, so let me just hold back a little bit. Riches are very tricky. Come back to Matthew 19 now. So a rich man, in order for him to shift his heart and his mind to the right place, to say, I recognize the proper place that riches hold in this world. I don't want riches to be the master of my heart. I am willing 
I'm willing to let the Lord Jesus tell me how to use all that I have. I'm willing to give it up to follow him. Until you've had something to give up, right? It's hard to appreciate just how difficult a sacrifice it is to have the comforts, the pleasures, the convenience of life. And then say, okay, I'll give that up. How hardly. He says in verse number 25, uh, you know, forgive me, before we get to verse 25, because I do want to address that. I, let's talk for a moment about verse 24. Because this, this proverb that he uses, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Some people have struggled with that phrase, eye of a needle. They don't think that Jesus would have used that proverb, although it was a very popular one. It would have made sense to use a, a figure of speech common to the era, common to the, to the people, known to the people. But some people have said, no, he didn't actually say camel, but instead he, he said cable. Now let me put the terms on, on the screen for you. Let me take the attendance code down. Um, so here is the word camel in Greek, all right? Kamelos, kamelos, kamelos. I would say it that way, kamelos. Um, you might see there's, I, I'm, I'm going to use the anglicized terms. It looks like a, a K, A, M, and then that thing that looks like an N, right? It's pronounced A in Greek, kamelos. So that's the word for camel. That's the word you find in all the manuscripts in this verse. Now, certain critics have said, no, no, Jesus didn't say camel. He said cable. And they say there must have been a typo somewhere. There must have been a scribal mistake because that you can see the word kamilas. It's, again, anglicized K-A-M and then that thing that looks like an I. If, if you just change out what looks like an N for what looks like an I, then you have the word cable. And then they, they try to say that cable would be the right way to refer to a thread. So what Jesus, in essence, was saying is it's easier for a camel, or a cable rather, a thread to go through the eye of a needle. So he's saying the, the level of difficulty for a rich man to be saved is that of trying to put a thread through the eye of a needle. Now, I'm not saying that threading a needle is necessarily easy, especially the older I get, a little more shaky with the hands, my eyes aren't as good, but that's not nearly as impossible sounding as the rest of the context makes this out to be. There's not one Greek manuscript anywhere that supports the idea that this should be cable. That is people who the, the critics that come up with that idea simply cannot wrap their head around the impossibility that Jesus is, well, let's say the improbability that Jesus is, is emphasizing here. I think impossibility is also fair enough if you're just dealing with the natural realm, as we're going to see in a moment. I know there's, I'm going to take these down and also mention there's people that have suggested another way to understand this, and that is in some of the Syrian cities. And in Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, north of Israel, it was a, a large trade route passed through there. So it was very common, as you would approach certain big cities in Syria, that they would have one very large, wide gate 
that the wagons and the larger beasts and animals would pass through. And then there was a smaller gate meant for you know, uh, people traveling by foot. So you had the wide and the, and the small gate, the narrow gate. People said that that narrow gate sometimes was referred to as the eye of the needle. Now, I personally have not seen that in, in any of the old history books. People simply, I, I, I think, I've, I'm going to stand at a correction because this is not something I've spent a long time trying to track down in the history books. But out of all the times I've studied this passage, I've never seen, out of all the commentaries or anything, an actual quote from another historical source saying that that smaller gate was called the eye of the needle. Maybe it does exist somewhere. But they say that Jesus is referring to that smaller opening, that narrow opening, that you're trying to take this large beast, the camel, and shove him through where a man would be walking. Well, why Jesus would be using a, an illustration from the Syrian trade route to get his point across would be a little puzzling for people that had not left Israel, right? These, these fishermen, these apostles, these disciples, they were not well-traveled men. So to use that illustration, again, I, I, don't, I don't think we need to go, we need to stretch it that far. I think it's quite simple to say Jesus is using that very familiar proverb. So verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Now, there's two reasons that they might be asking this. I, to be honest, I've only considered one thing until today. I read something else. It, it, I'm not going to dismiss it too, too quickly. I'll have to marinate in the thought of it a little lo longer before I come to any conclusions on it. But one person suggested that if the rich people were going to be denied the kingdom and the rich people were the ones that had all the power, politically speaking, and you know, just within society at that time, that the rich would have fought against the Messiah and his disciples trying to establish the kingdom. And then who can be saved from what the rich will do to us? that they will raise up all the political powers and societal powers and come against us. And what? Who then could be saved from this, this uh, secular, this physical war? I, I have never considered that. I'm not sure that fits exactly what Jesus is getting at, especially when you consider what had just happened with this rich young ruler. We're talking about eternal life. So to say who then can be saved, I think it, the context still links into that spiritual nature, not the physical nature of, a, of them, an impending war. Verse 26, well, forgive me, I'm jumping ahead again. Who then can be saved? I don't think it's the physical war. I think, I think what it is, they have just heard Jesus talking about it's difficult for a rich man. They've just heard not only for a rich man, but his standard is so high. This young man, had kept all these commandments, and still he was lacking. I, it, I think all of it combined, right? Hearing how that Jesus just said it's that difficult for a rich man to get saved. But using that proverb, they're blown away. Wow, really, it's that difficult? Together with what he told that rich young ruler, these men, their minds are blown. Now, when you again, you read in Mark, 
it says that the disciples said this among themselves. They didn't actually ask Jesus this. But, verse 26, but Jesus beheld them. As far as I know, this is the only time in the Gospels where you have a phrase like that, where Jesus stands and just looks at him for a minute. He beheld them. It's the only time it says that. So he, he knew what they were saying, even though they didn't ask him specifically, you know, directly. But he's going to answer their concern. I find this fascinating because haven't you ever been sitting in Bible school or in church or maybe listening to a sermon, uh, you know, some recording, something, and there's something that's been on your heart, something going on in your life. There's no way the preacher or your friend or whoever you're talking with could have known that you needed to hear that right then. You did not make your concern public knowledge. And just like these disciples did not directly ask the Lord, he still is going to address what they need to hear. I find this much like Jesus. This is how he operates. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So it could be that the disciples are saying, Who then among the rich can be saved? Right, If it's that difficult. Who is it among mankind that can be saved based on the high standards? Either question, whichever one is applicable, the answer is the same. The only way somebody can inherit eternal life, the only way that somebody could, could meet God's standards, God has to, by grace, reach out and do something. God's grace can make such a compelling case I'm not going to go as far as to say it is irresistible because it can be resisted. You say, how do you know that? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen told those Jews that they were resisting the Holy Spirit. God's grace can be resisted, but it is so compelling. I'm going to use the word overwhelming. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. When God, through the Holy Spirit, begins to work on a person's heart and shows that sinner that even though the standard is extremely high and discipleship is extremely costly, at the same time, it is so worth it. And that the peace, the love, the joy, the fellowship, the reconciliation, everything that the heart and the soul truly yearns for can be found not in the money. God offers something that money cannot. That deep sense of satisfaction and peace with God. Can it be resisted? Yes. But as Jesus told the Apostle Paul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. When God pricks the heart out of love, out of grace, out of mercy, saying, Sinner, look up to me. Sinner, come home to me. Sinner, stop trying to fill the void of your life with all these worldly, temporary pleasures. It's not going to work. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. God can make such a compelling case. And with God it is possible that a rich man could end up even with just a linen cloth running 
in the garden, having followed Jesus as far as he possibly could. Now verse number 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? So now we're into the last part of the outline for this chapter, the faithful people. So we looked at the young people, now the faithful people. Then answered Peter, what, what shall we have? We've forsaken all. Fair enough question. Fair enough. He's just heard the conversation between the young man and Jesus. He's heard what Jesus had to say about rich people. And now he's thinking, okay, hmm. We have forsaken all. We have done what the rich man was told to do. We gave up everything, and we are following Christ. So, man, where does that leave us? What, what shall we have, therefore? Verse 28, he says, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Now we know contextually, we know when that is. That, that'll happen at the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back, he sits upon the throne of his father David, and all of nature will be regenerated. So think of this regenesis. We, we're, we're going back to paradise. Right? He's going to renovate the earth. The regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this links to the verses you find in Revelation 5, uh, Revelation 1, Revelation 20 talks about how we are going to live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. We, we reign as kings on the earth. In Luke chapter 19, you have another parable where it says, uh, a man came and he, had give, he was given a pound. He gained 10 pounds. The reward is have authority over 10 cities. And then another man has five cities. So this speaks to that millennial inheritance that you receive for faithful service to the Lord. This is consistent even with our uh, situation now in the New Testament with the body of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 if we serve the Lord Christ, we can receive the reward of the inheritance. And for the apostles, they will inherit a position of authority, a very high position of authority within the nation of Israel. All right, that, that'll be their territory. You and I, we would be relegated to some other place on, on the earth, obviously. Now, just so for interest's sake, in the millennium, Jesus his headquarters, his throne is in Jerusalem, the throne of his father David. But David will be back. He will be resurrected and, and alive in this time. And in the book of Ezekiel, we read that he is going to be the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of the whole show. The whole earth is his. But then under him, you have other kings. And David is king over the land of Israel. And then these apostles, they have a very high position of authority judging, right? I, I don't know what the official title, if it will be judge or some other title. I, you know, you, when you try to think of it in modern terms, you have a mayor, you have a governor, things like that. So they're going to hold a very high position. Let me give you, I have a few verses here. I, I will say them, I'll read them to you, but I hope you can see them all. Let me try to get out of the way a little bit. There, I'm centered a little better as well. 
Um, I don't know if I can make this a little bigger. There we go. That's better. All right. Here are some verses that go with the regeneration. Now, these verses talk about when the Messiah comes back, how he's going to the, renovate the earth, and it will it'll have the characteristics of the Garden of Eden. So in a couple of these verses, it specifically mentions Eden. Then in other places, it just talks about how nature is going to be fantastically changed. So Isaiah 30, verse 23 and verse 26 talks about how the sun will shine seven times brighter than it does now, and the moon will shine as does the sun. Uh, Isaiah 51, verse 3, it talks about going back to the uh, paradise situation, the garden. Ezekiel 36, 35, that also mentions Eden. Acts 3, verse 21, Peter there talks about the restitution of all things. So all things, not just our souls, right? Not just people, but even nature is restored. And then Romans 8, 21, you should be familiar with that. We studied it this year in Romans, how all creation groans together but uh, for right now. But one day when the manifestation of the sons of God takes place, that is the second coming, uh, then even creation will be delivered from its bondage. All right, so for those of you, I hope you've had time to write that down. You can hit pause. It's one of the blessings of, of this technology. You can write those down if you need to a little later. All right, verse 29, Jesus says, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake... That's a lot to give up. That's the price of discipleship. Forsaking a house. Forsaking your wife. Now listen, this is, this is not saying that you know you get saved, now you've got to get divorced. But we've been talking about this recently in church and in Bible school. And this links into what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 7. You can have two people get married that are unsaved and then after some time, one of, the, one of those two spouses will become saved, then what do you do? The unbelieving may leave. Well, that person has a choice. Do I, do I give up my faith so I can keep my spouse? Or do I stay a disciple and potentially lose him or her? Well, see, that's a, that's a sacrifice that might have to be made. Children, lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Now, everlasting life, eternal life, a couple ways you can understand it. And, and by the way, there is a very slight difference between eternal life and everlasting life. Eternal doesn't have a beginning. Everlasting, it can. Now, many times they're used interchangeably, but technically everlasting starts here and, and never stops. Right? And the eternal, you can go both ways and it never stops either way. Right, You can go as far back in the past and into the future, it just keeps going. But in this sense, everlasting life, I believe he's speaking about immortality. Right, You, you will never end. The, the body, everything. You don't lose your soul. Um, eternal life, right? and sometimes even the phrase everlasting life, it can be used in a different context to say you are tapping into a relationship with God. Now see, one thing kind of affects your personal being. It's just limited to you. You yourself have this immortality. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 uh, that through the gospel, life and immortality has been brought to, it's been manifested. It's been brought out. 
So immortality is something that is addressed within the gospel. But then the Bible says in, in John 17, to know God, that is eternal life. So now we're talking about the sinner being connected to God, tapping into what true life actually is. So I, when Jesus says you'll inherit everlasting life, I don't think that the disciples will eventually get a relationship with God one day in the future. I believe he's referencing the resurrection. You'll, you'll get to come up in the resurrection and have that immortal body, that glorified body. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask that you turn over to Mark uh, chapter 10, just for a moment. Mark chapter 10. There we are. Mark 10, verse 30. I want to show you one additional thing that Jesus said. And uh, again, Matthew, he's giving us good information. Mark gives us a little bit of supplementary information. Mark 10. Uh, you can see verse 28, 29. It's the same, same basic con. Well, it is the same context. Verse 30. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses, brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions. And in the world to come, eternal life. Right? Now, let's, let's notice the, the few additions that we get in verse 30. Now in this time. So the reward of being a proper disciple of Christ and having forsaken all to follow him, you don't have to wait till the resurrection. Even now, he says, you can receive houses, brethren, sisters, and so forth. Now, you can see how somebody might abuse that and say, well, there's some prosperity in there. I'm going to become rich. That's obviously not what he's saying. Myself, I... Again, rich can be subjective, right? It, it can, you can judge that on a sliding scale. But I have had many people say, Brother Mike, if you need a place to stay anytime you're in town, our house is open to you. I have become brothers and sisters with so many hundreds of people. Now, not when I say that, I, I realize in the body of Christ there's millions and millions, but people that I have a personal relationship with that are close to me, Ladies that are older than me, mothers, men with, you know, fathers, children, younger people, lands. I've had people say, Brother Mike, if you want to use this land for any church function, here it is. All of that stuff has happened now. So I've seen this come to pass. I've also seen the persecutions come to pass to a certain extent, not nearly as bad as some others. Notice what's missing, however. I found this interesting. If you look in verse 29, there is no man that hath left house, brethren, sisters, father, mother, or wife. But then when you get to verse 30, he doesn't say, now in this time you receive wives. <laughs> now, I find that interesting because not only, right, I'm presently that, that shouldn't be true, but in the resurrection, we are not married nor are given in marriage. So that is in, left out of the list. I find that interesting. All right, now verse, uh, come back to Matthew chapter 19. And verse number 30, Matthew 19 and 30. He says, But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now this is a phrase that Jesus was known to use on several occasions. We, we have it here. You're going to see it in the next chapter again. And then there's another occasion in Luke, I believe it's chapter 13, where Jesus uses it. And it's a completely different context. So on a few occasions, Jesus would slip this in. And each time... 
the first and last, you have to let the context tell you what the first and what the last are referring to. In this particular case, people that are first in this world right now, in this current age, in this life, this temporary mortal life, we consider the rich people. You know, they're the first class, but in the resurrection, last. And the people that give it all away and follow Christ, society considers them lower class, last. You have nothing. Shame. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But the, the ones that have done it for Christ in the resurrection they become first. They get this high honor judging the 12 tribes and so forth. So in this particular context, that is how that, that phrase would be applied. All right, now we can move on to chapter 20. We're obviously not going to finish chapter 20, but I do want to at least introduce you to the chapter. Let me give you the outline. Uh, forgive me, that's pretty small. I struggled a little bit to make this any bigger. Anytime that I tried it... Uh, the wording just got all wonky. Is that a real word? Wonky. But here's your outline. Matthew chapter 24 parts. Number 1, verses 1 to 16, the 11th hour. The 11th hour. And uh, with the parable, you'll see why that's an appropriate title. Part 2, verses 17 to 19, the end of Jesus' life. He's going to once again remind his disciples of his eminent um, crucifixion. Verses 20 to 29, the elevation of ministers. We're going to have James and John coming and asking for a special place in the kingdom, and Jesus will tell them what's expected of ministers and how to achieve uh, an actual godly standard of greatness. And then the chapter closes, verses 30 to 34, an eye-opening experience. And obviously I was aiming to alliterate with the letter E, the eye-opening experience is Jesus healing uh, blind men. All right, so chapter 20, let's begin here with our parable. Verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Now the vineyard, when you study that word, you can find it throughout the prophets as a reference to the land of Israel. So I can understand why somebody would plug that, that biblical fact into this, this parable and say that God is hiring laborers, ministers, to go out into Israel. And then you, there's a, there's a few different ways I think we can approach this parable. And to be honest, I think, it, it, I think all of these approaches could be viable. You can look at it through a historical lens. Right? You can look at it through the history of Israel, starting with the earliest prophets to these apostles right, that have just shown up. You could look at it from the days of the apostles until the second coming of Christ. So you, you see what I mean? You can stretch this parable to fit over a particular timetable as far as history is concerned. But then I think you can also break it down even farther and apply it to your own life. And if I can say your own generation, here's what I mean by this. Some people will get saved and serve the Lord from their early days as a teenager all the way until they're 70 or 80. And then you have some people that don't get saved until they're 70 or 80 
and they barely have a chance to do anything until their life is over. So you can apply it to a person's life and then measure it against other people in, in your own generation. So either way, I think the same truths are going to be applicable. All right, so with that in mind, the vineyard, it could be referring just to the land of Israel, the prophets that preach there. However, when we think about the, the harvest, right? Matthew 9, Jesus said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he sends forth laborers into his harvest. I struggle to see that as only the nation of Israel. We understand, we know that the plan was to start in Israel and eventually uh, reach the world. So I think it's completely legitimate to understand the vineyard in this passage as referring to the whole world. But that's the mission field that we're targeting. Verse 2, And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, a penny, right, we don't, let's not make that equivalent to the modern day penny in America. Penny is worthless pretty much now. I, forgive me, I'm not even going to try to work out the math. It's, it's 18 rand to the dollar. So one hundredth of that is the penny, you know, that, that's a penny. You need a hundred pennies to make a dollar. So it's not much. But back in these days, evidently, a penny is equivalent to one day's salary. So think of this as a, a farm worker. Right? What would you pay him for a day? And then you can kind of get an idea what, what uh, the agreement was made for. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour. Now, the beginning of the day is 6 a.m., right? We're counting using Jewish time. The third hour, he goes out at 9 a.m. He went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. They're just standing around, just chatting. Why the marketplace? Well, that's where, you know, people are coming and going. There's more happening there. So people are going to stand around and talk there. He finds them idle. Verse 4, And said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way. Now notice he did not offer them the same deal. He didn't say you're going to get a penny. He said whatever is right. Now that's going to be very important. Verse 5, again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. So this thing is just repeating itself. He's giving these folks a chance to, to work. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? So he goes out at 6, hires the first batch. 9 o'clock a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m. Now he's getting to 5 p.m. That's the eleventh hour. Now, I'm not going to get into the preaching aspect of this, but I've heard many a good sermon start in verse number six. Why stand ye here all the day idle? What are you waiting for? There's a vineyard. There's work to be done. The, the harvest truly is plenteous. The laborers are few get to work. So you, I think you can work out immediately how somebody could make a fantastic sermon out of this. Verse seven, they say unto him, because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, go ye also into the vineyard. And whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Notice that agreement. Whatever's right. So they don't have an exact amount that's promised them. Just that the Lord of the vineyard will do them right. Verse 8. So when even was come, even. Now we would say evening, right? The evening and the morning were the first day, second day, and so forth. That, that's biblical language. The even come. That's 6 p.m. So, you know, the whistle sounds, day's over. So when the even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, 
call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Now notice how Jesus has transitioned. In Matthew 19, he just used that phrase, the last shall be first, first shall be last. Now he's gonna, he's gonna use that same language. It's gonna have a slightly different, I'm, I'm gonna say a slightly different meaning in this particular parable. But start with the people that got hired last. Let's pay them first. Verse nine, and when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny. Can you imagine how surprised they were? What? By the time they got out to the vineyard, there had been people in that vineyard working for 11 hours. And they're just now getting into the vineyard. These men are hot, sweaty, tired. Say, hey, uh, we're just getting started here. We didn't know this was going on. The Lord just hired us. Um, just out of curiosity, how much are you going to make? Oh, he agreed with us a penny. Oh, penny, okay. And you, they probably started to do the math in their own mind. Well, you know, if we're only working one hour. You work 12. We're going to get, you know, a certain ratio, a certain percentage of that. <laughs> when the Lord hands them a full penny. What? I get paid just as much? Blown away. Verse 11, and when they had received it, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. So they're watching the last laborers to, to be hired. They watch them get paid. Boy, they're getting excited. They got a penny? Oh, man. If they got a penny, then I can see my, my, my paycheck getting bigger. And they're getting excited. They suppose that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. Whoo, talk about a letdown. <laughs> Sucker punch. Ooh, what? And when they had received it, they murmured against the goodman of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. So I thought, man, this just isn't fair. How, how can that be right? We work so much harder, and yet we're getting the same pay? Jesus' answer, verse 11, or 13, I'm sorry. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Which is true, isn't it? Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Whew. He says, man, you have no room for complaining. Verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Yes, it is. Now, let's be careful. There are some that would be tempted to say that this supports the idea of God unconditionally, just handing out blessings arbitrarily, indiscriminately, for no good reason. Here's a blessing. You don't get one. I can do what I want. That's not what's happening here. And that's not what the Lord's doing. Notice at the end of verse 15, is thine eye evil because I am good? Yes. The evil eye, remember that? Matthew 6, verse 23, that's greed. So when they, when they saw the last getting paid, right? The last laborers to be hired, they're getting paid. They started to get greedy. They said, ooh, I'm gonna get more, I'm gonna get more. Well, the Lord never said that they would get more. 
So let me give you some important lessons. We're going to bring this to a close in just a moment. Take that down. All right, here's some lessons to be learned from this parable. Number one, God will honor his word. God will honor his word. He'll make good on his promise. Number two, don't compare yourself to other servants. You say, but I'm doing more than him. I'm doing more than her. Ooh, comparing yourselves among yourselves, not wise. That's what these first laborers were doing. And number three, don't labor for the reward, labor for the master. If it's all about the reward, your motive is wrong. Now, let's, let's dig into why it was okay for the Lord to do what he did. You say, well, he's God and do whatever he wants. Even God holds himself to the standards of his own nature. He's not going to violate his nature, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, love, mercy. All of that stuff factors in. If God said, I'm going to pay you this, then he will pay you this. He told the other laborers, I'll give you that which is right. So what the Lord's looking for is not quantity, but quality. That's what we learn here. The guy that only had an hour to work, that's all. He, he couldn't have been expected to do more. He didn't have any longer of an opportunity. So the Lord looks at the quality of the man's work and says, you worked faithfully for as long as you were hired. So I'm going to give you an appropriate reward. The Lord rewards the man's faithfulness, his endurance, his commitment to do the job right. God is allowed to use whatever standard he desires to judge people righteously. See, what does he value? Faithfulness. It's not an issue of quantity, but rather quality. Be very careful. Be very careful. What happens is we can look at how God is treating others and we say, this person who's that's a wicked person. They don't do as much as I do in the church or in this world or in life. They treat their family and look how God's blessing them. Look how God's doing this and that for them. Or it doesn't even have to be a wicked person. We could look at some other brother, sister in Christ who is, in, by our estimation, as committed as we are. We look at them and think, but God is blessing them and they have this great peace and joy and I don't feel that. This isn't fair. And we begin to get bitter because we see God doing some great things in their life and yet we don't perceive those things in ours and then we start to get angry at God. Why isn't he doing this for me? Don't let your eye become evil. What does God owe you? What did God promise you? God will make good on his promise to you. You can be sure. Let's close in verse number 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. What are we dealing with here? The first. He says, the last shall be first. So the ones that were hired last, they expected little, and yet they get an, a position that is elevated from their expectation. They get more than they were bargaining for. And the first, they considered themselves to be on a higher plane. They get humbled and they get less of a reward than they expected. So in that sense, they are last. 
So you see how the same phrase, if you apply it to this parable, takes on a slightly different meaning. For many be called, but few chosen. So again, that phrase is also used in multiple places. Many be called. Anybody that's saved is called to go serve in the, in, in the vineyard, in the harvest, to go bring in the sheaves. But not everybody does the same quality of work and therefore in the kingdom will not be rewarded the same. God will honor his word. He will reward you accordingly, according to his standard, what he values as good work. All right. We have reached a limit is what we can cover tonight. I hope, I hope that helped with that parable. If you guys have any questions, let me just check my comment section. I don't see any questions. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, but as I'm praying, if you do have a question, feel free to slip it in. I am going to slip in. Amen. <laughs> I love that thing. That's good. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to cover these things. And Lord, I, I know this today I was helped It really helped me to study this particular parable. Lord, we want to take seriously this issue of discipleship and we don't want anything to grip our hearts aside from you, Lord. We want our hearts to be completely under your control. Lord, we know you've sent us into the vineyard. We didn't even deserve to get a job. We didn't deserve to be hired. What an honor it is to serve you. And Lord, we trust that you will give us what is right, but it's not about the reward, Lord. Just as long as we get to, at the end of the day, look you in the eye. and Lord, I think we would be the one owing you the thanks. You don't owe us anything. Lord, we are internally in your debt. Thank you, oh, that overwhelming grace that brought us to Christ. Thank you for this eternal life that you've offered us and given us. I pray that your hand will be on each student. Help Brother Francois tomorrow as he teaches. Bring us back together again tomorrow to learn more from your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, check one more time. I don't see any questions. You guys have a wonderful night. You'll see Francois tomorrow.